You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi, welcome back to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We've been bringing you different perspectives on the rising national security issues from the need for minerals for battery technology as we switch from combustion engines. And in particular, we've been focusing on the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific, where there happen to be a lot of those minerals on the seabed. Now, we've brought you part one of Matt Gianni, who is a conservationist, about whether this mining is viable, profitable, or at all advisable, or will cause an environmental calamity, followed by the perspective of the metals company, which has a contract with, I believe, the king of Nehru to mine the seabed in what would be Nehru waters and their perspective on the importance and the desperate need for the materials that can be found on the seabed. So we've given you half of each of their casts that you could hear each of their points of view. Now we return to the point of view of the conservationists. So stand by for part two of our conversation with Matt Johnny. It's seductive to think about some alternatives to developing different types of batteries, but you can see how difficult this shift from fossil fuels has been, right? Even though we all know that this is a damaging, exploitative industry and we've had alternatives, we've had sustainable alternatives for quite a long time, it's really difficult to get companies to make the transition over. Is it really realistic to think, okay, well, we'll just develop different alternatives and that would meet, lead to the abandonment of the pursuit of these particular minerals instead of saying, okay, well, we've got two solutions. Let's like mine those things, the alternative and the cobalt that's found in the deep sea. Well, I, well, I think that's true that in that up till now, most of the projections of future metals demand have been based on current technologies, the current you know use of metals in, in battery technology, for example, somewhat about 100 pounds of nickel, 14, 15 pounds of cobalt per battery. But what's happening is that because of this now, these commitments, particularly in the automobile industry, to transition, you know, to electrify, basically, the transition away from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles massive amounts of research and development are going in to developing better batteries, much safer batteries and much cheaper batteries than the current lithium, manganese, cobalt, nickel batteries. And some of that R&D is now showing results. For example, the world's second largest electric automobile manufacturer, BYD, in China, is selling exclusively lithium iron phosphate batteries. No cobalt, no nickel. They're cheaper and they're safer. They don't get the same range, but there's a lot of R&D going into how do you improve the range of the iron phosphate batteries as opposed to the nickel, cobalt, and manganese batteries. I think as well, from the point of view of the government, you would think that some of these metals, cobalt, for example, and nickel, are not just expensive, but they're also the, the supply, whether it's the actual mining itself terrestrially or the supply chain, the, the refining, is relatively limited. And so it behooves, for example, the U.S. in terms of the U.S. government, in terms of, of promoting the development of renewable technology to orient the research into metals and materials that are far cheaper, far more abundant, and don't come with all the baggage associated with either environmental destruction or restricted supplies or potentially disrupted supplies because of being mined in conflict zones. And I think that there's a major role for government to play here. Already here in Europe, where I'm based, American originally, but you know, based over here for the last 20 years in Holland, the European Union now is negotiating a new regulation for batteries. And that's both in terms of sourcing the materials and recycling those batteries 
in products used within the European Union, primarily in the electric vehicle industry. And these issues are coming up. You know, how is Europe going to be self-sufficient in terms of the materials needed to transition to renewable energy technologies, particularly in the transport sector? And I think that similar, those debates are happening in China. China is developing recycling uh, legislation or has already recycling legislation in place. And I think part of what government can and should do is orient the development prompt, whether through subsidies or whether through research and development or some combination of a range of different incentives, the use of materials that are less environmentally damaging, better recycling of the materials that are already in circulation, and promoting the use of metals and materials that are low cost and, and much more abundant in order to ensure security of supply and ensure a much more rapid and smooth transition to renewable energy. Matt, before we move on to, I would like to talk to you in a moment about some of these uh, exclusive economic zones. But before we get off this topic, you just raised something that I thought was extremely important. The infrastructure to create batteries, refine these minerals, there's none of that in, and or recycle them. There is none in the United States, correct? Th- those are all controlled and largely controlled at this point by China. Well, yes and no. I think that's, that's, that's true for processing refining cobalt. On the other hand, with nickel, There is quite a bit of mining in a range of different countries, Indonesia, Caledonia, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Russia, Canada, Australia, uh, etc. And I think Tesla has just now signed a a longish term contract with a company that is opening up a mine in Minnesota, if I recall correctly. So, you know, it's possible to develop the refining capacity here in the United States if, you know, there's proper incentives to do so. But again, there's plenty of other materials that could be used. And the extraordinary thing is the potential of of recycling. The International Telecommunications Union, for example, puts out reports on a periodic basis, an annual or biannual basis, on the amount of electronic waste that is recycled. And there's something like 50 some odd million tons of e-waste that are thrown away each year, of which less than 20% is recycled. And I remember talking to a senior researcher at Apple in a debate over deep sea bed mining that we had a couple of years ago at the World Economic Forum's Institute for Sustainable Futures or whatever it's called, it's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution out in San Francisco. And he said, well, we should be getting those recycling rates up to at least 80% before we even think about going into the deep ocean and opening up new areas to mine these metals. And when you look at, for example, The amount of nickel that is on the U.S. market, only about half the nickel on the U.S. market is actually terrestrially mined. The rest is either recycled or scrap. And the similar case holds for copper. So there is a lot of potential here to make better use of what's already out there, uh, whether it's in urban waste dumps or in tailings ponds or in just the metal that's been discarded and be much more self-sufficient about it in the process. Many of the seers in the United States, including those who cover the tech industry, predict that the first trillionaire will be somebody who can harness carbon. And another comment has been and recycle these materials. So that is a very interesting point. Let's move on now to something called exclusive economic zones. And just to confuse our listeners more, we'll refer to those as EECs. And let's talk about how climate change has already and how it will shrink these zones for island nations such as Nauru and Tonga. What is putting that in motion? Well, sea level rise is putting that in motion, obviously. And there is a real concern that some of the low level island nations are going to see their EEZs shrink considerably and in some cases possibly disappear altogether. You know, the EEZ is measured as the area of ocean surrounding 
the land out to 200 miles or 200 nautical miles. It's a little bit longer than regular miles. And if, for example, outlying islands on an archipelago disappear beneath the waves, then all of a sudden that baseline against which the EEZ is measured moves considerably further in one direction or another, shrinking the EEZ. There is a debate about this at the UN. Do the countries that currently have their EEZs well marked, most of which do. Uh, there are some disputes between countries where the two EEZs butt up against each other, where there isn't, say, a 400-mile distance between the two. But do those countries retain the EEZs even if they lose some of their land mass? And I think that that debate, you know, it's, it's been ongoing for quite a while, and it's probably would result in some sort of retention of the EEZ, even if some of these island nations uh, lost some of their land mass or, or, or potentially disappeared altogether. And that would mean retention of jurisdiction over the fisheries in those 200-mile limits, even if the land mass disappeared. But again, this is a debate, and there, it raises all kinds of complicated issues about from what vantage point do would a country continue to manage the, its EEZ if it no longer existed terrestrially, if the people, for example, had to move somewhere else in the world and how that jurisdiction would be exercised. So I think it's fair. If we just want to kind of summarize what you've told us, there are just a lot of competing interests here. We know that at least one item that was used in the development of the COVID-19 vaccine came from the seabed. The economic potential is clearly irresistible, even though there are better, cheaper, faster alternatives. If you're able to make some benefit from a resource, it's difficult for companies to not seek that out. And we also know, to your point, that conservation is not just some touchy-feely sort of free-willy kind of aim. There are a lot of real-world impacts beyond uh, saving the animals in preserving the ecosystem in these areas that we've been talking about. Can you just like tell us what your coalition is recommending? It's pretty unrealistic to expect this kind of mining to end completely. And you mentioned that some of the solutions that are kind of floating around there, like ecological exchanges, are meaningless. What mitigation, if any, can be undertaken to avoid the environmental calamity that you all are predicting? Mitigation measures are a very much an open question. In an area like the Clarion-Clipperton zone, it would take decades of research to know whether, in fact, mitigation was possible. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that our coalition is calling for a moratorium. We're calling for a moratorium on any deep sea bed mining until the environmental impacts are fully understood and it's possible to figure out a way to do the mining without causing significant environmental impacts. And secondly, a moratorium until the ISA is reformed. Because again, it's, it's to use Nancy Reagan's phrase, it would be very difficult for the ISA to just say no to any country or company that wanted to apply for a mining license. Uh, if and when the, this uh, mining would prove profitable to individual countries or, or companies. We're also saying that there needs to be a moratorium until there's a real social license to mine. And at least amongst people involved in the ocean side of things, there's, well, not just the ocean side of things, but also environmental issues generally, there's a lot of resistance to deep sea bed mining. And a number of corporations and companies have come out basically saying the same thing. BMW, for example, Google, the Volvo Group, 
Samsung SDI, which is one of the largest battery manufacturers in the world, uh, Microsoft, they've all come out and said, we're going to put, uh, you know, either we support a moratorium or we are going to keep deep sea bed metals out of our supply chains unless and until you can prove that it can be done in a way that's not going to do damage to the marine environment. And again, one of our biggest beefs with the ISA is in the countries that are that are negotiating these. And it's not all countries. You know, there are there are a handful of countries that are really pushing for the International Seabed Authority to open up the deep ocean to mining. Is that they're not doing it because the world needs these metals. They're doing it because the companies that they sponsor think they can make good money doing this. And again, you come back to international law. And one of the foundational principles of the International Seabed Authority, the legal regime for mining the International Seabed, written into the Law of the Sea Convention, is that the International Seabed Authority must, quote, act for the benefit of humankind as a whole and, quote, act on behalf of humankind as a whole. And clearly, this is not what's happening at the International Seabed Authority right now. To the extent that there's a push on by the Secretariat of the International Seabed Authority in particular, but also some of the countries involved, to get to a point where they can start licensing, open up the deep ocean to mining, it's being done for the benefit of a handful of companies and countries that want to make money off this and not for the benefit of all of us. And you touched on something important of it, which I hadn't mentioned earlier, and at least I think mentioned in the opening remarks, but the whole issue of marine genetic resources. There are all kinds of potential pharmaceutical and industrial applications from these so-called extremophile species, species that live in the very deep ocean and developed all kinds of chemical and, and other means of either attacking prey or, or avoiding predators. Sponges in particular are a source of quite a few pharmaceutical products that have been developed. And so for all these reasons, we're saying we need a moratorium on deep sea bed mining. The world needs to rethink the whole issue of going into the deep sea and opening up very large areas of, of the deep sea. I mean, we're talking about areas, you know, mines that would be the size of, you know, four times the size of Rhode Island. And when you look at the Clarion Clipperton zone, there are already 17 and soon to be an 18th uh, exploration license uh, out there. And if all of those are turned into um, exploitation licenses, we'd be talking about mining somewhere about 250 to 500,000 square miles of the deep seabed. Once that door is open, it's going to be very difficult to turn it back unless they have a very clear understanding of what the environmental impacts are, how to manage those, and how to keep the ISA being prevented from just handing out licenses because that's constitutionally what it is designed to do. All right, Matt, this has been a very important discussion today. And for our young lawyers, I think the idea that work in this area would be dealing with what is the common heritage of all mankind is certainly something that they should consider. And let me add here that we're going to hyperlink to the website for the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition if you'd like to take a look. Regarding these various species Matt has referenced, to the extent that you're unfamiliar with this, you may want to start slowly by looking at a recent film on this topic, which we will hyperlink. And now, before we let you go, I would like to ask you what you might advise young lawyers who would be interested in pursuing a career as an attorney in deep sea conservation or alternatively in the national security and global impacts of the deep sea? Good question. I think that there is a real need for creative legal thinking and a real need for enhanced global architecture and legal infrastructure to deal with problems like or issues like how do we manage the deep sea for the benefit in activities in the deep sea for the benefit of humankind as a whole? And it's not just deep sea bed mining. I mean, climate change is clearly, you know, the deep sea is already under stress from climate change impacts, from 
fishing impacts from marine pollution and plastics that are being found in the deepest parts of the oceans. And my own view is, having worked in the environmental field for 30 years on top of 10 years as a commercial fisherman and and have been involved in international treaty negotiations at the United Nations and through the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, is that, you know, collectively, we have to come up as a species, as humankind as a whole, we have to come up to global solutions to these increasingly global problems. And they're all interconnected and they're all interlinked. And it's a challenge to balance national interests against the common interest of, of humankind as a whole in dealing with things like climate change or ocean management or high seas fisheries or deep sea bed conservation and deep sea bed mining. And there is a real need for good lawyers with a clear understanding of the challenges we face globally over the next several decades, not just in terms of climate change, but in terms of biodiversity loss, in terms of loss of ecosystem goods and services, if we don't change course, and if we don't change course collectively, you know, as an international community of nations as a whole. It's a tall order, it's a tough order, but these are the challenges we face, and we can't ignore them. And I think young people in particular recognize this as much or more so than a lot of the rest of us that, or me at least, I'll speak for myself only, have been around for a while. And I think our future depends on on, on some really good creative uh, legal work and savvy and politically negotiating the kinds of agreements that we need collectively to avoid the, the worst of the consequences that are looming on the horizon as a result of climate change and, and loss of species and loss of ecosystem goods and services. Matt, it has been a real pleasure learning about this really fascinating area of the law, of the conversation around all of these different competing interests. So thank you so much for offering your perspective. And we hope to have you back in the future. If I could add one thing, just to say that if the nations of the world collectively decide, the 167 members of the of the ISA, potentially with the support of the United States, even as a non-member, to say, let's put the brakes on something we thought was a good idea in the 1970s, but we recognize is much more problematic today. To me, that would be a sign of hope that the world, the, the international community of nations is recognizing that there is an issue that needs to be collectively dealt with and can be dealt with successfully. It could be like a Montreal Protocol moment. If in the next few years, the seabed authority says, let's just shelf the idea of going mining anytime soon until we have a much better understanding of these deep sea ecosystems, the role that the ocean plays in, in regulating uh, you know, planetary uh, processes, including the climate. It would be a recognition, I think, a, an indication of an increasing maturity on the part of the world to be able to collectively resolve environmental issues that need to be resolved collectively uh, because of their planetary implications. So that's, that's my hope and my message of hope, and we'll see what happens. Our guest today has been Matthew Gianni of the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. Join us for our next installment on the national security implications of minerals mining and how mining the seabed might have an impact on subsea cables that connect our telecommunications and global internet systems as well. And we will see you next Thursday when our new episode drops. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. And don't forget to check out our website for the latest information on our upcoming National Security Law CLE virtual conference which will be held February 17th and 18th, and again, February 24th and 25th. Hey, we never take your attention for granted, so if you have topics that you'd like us to cover or feedback, find us on Twitter at ABA NADSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. 
And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, we're here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out Matt's website, you can find it at www.savethehighseas.org. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 